You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, and I'm really delighted we've got uh, Constanze Stelzenmüller uh, with us today. Uh, good morning, Constanze. Thank you for the inv invitation. Happy to be here. For those who don't know, um, uh, Dr. Constanze Stelzenmüller is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, which is just across the street uh, from the American German Institute. Uh, she is also the holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations uh, there. We could spend a half an hour going through your resume, Constanza, and That's so not. I won't do that. Yes, um, <laughs> but uh, just to highlight a couple of things, um, uh, previously director of the Berlin Office of the German Marshall Fund and senior transatlantic fellow, um, study at a variety of uh, well-known universities, uh, including in Bonn at Harvard's Kennedy School, um, and uh, author of a monthly column for the Financial Times, among the many other publications where your name appears. So um, delighted to have this uh, opportunity to talk with you about Germany, transatlantic defense, and the West's response to the challenges of today. Um, and you know where to begin. Um, we've all talked a lot about the remarkable ways in which Germany and its European uh, friends and allies have uh, reoriented their foreign policy. But maybe just to start with a basic question, um, are we all doing enough? And I include the United States in that uh, category as well, because uh, I think that uh, that can't be uh, uh, left aside. Yeah, Jeff, funny you should say that. I'm just working on a column about what I've in the past called the the Washington-Berlin axis of prudence mm. um, between the White House and the Chancery more specifically, which has been hyper-focused on preventing escalation. Um, and I think on preventing a loss by Ukraine, but, but somewhat less focused on doing whatever it takes to help Ukraine win. Um, and I want to say from the outset that I, uh, genuinely empathize with the policymakers involved. I think they are staring at incredibly hard choices and trade-offs, and those trade-offs are getting harder by the day. Um, and anybody in in that higher position, I think, has a has a sacred duty to worry about collateral risks of of his or her policies. So I get that, um, but I still beg to disagree with the outcome of the strategy. Mm -hmm. I think it's not working, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, um, and and maybe we'll get to that right now um, because the 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 question um, in the first twenty twenty one months of Russia's uh, war on the European security order, um, there has been space to be prudent, but also to uh, continuously increase the level of material military humanitarian support to Ukraine. Are you suggesting that we're now reaching a point where uh, the, the the prudence and the uh, and the expansion of support are in competition? I, I think that's a fair way to put it, Jeff. Um, 
the look you and i i think are are profoundly aware as as politics uh junkies that we are um of the increasingly severe domestic constraints besetting both the, the biden administration as it gears up for a presidential election and uh the german coalition which is increasingly struggling um with its remit um with uh a with the opposition with unfriendly uh, jurisprudence from constitutional courts and the rise of the hard right actually on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing a Russia that has, is clearly gearing up for a winter of, of bombarding Ukrainian civil, civilian infrastructure and cities again, that is transforming its economy into a war economy that is stirring trouble by supporting the hard right across the West, that is um, stirring the dissent, the, the disagreements between the Western alliance and, and what is, I think, somewhat unfortunately called the global South, the non-Western world. Mm-hmm. And and increasingly an alliance between Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea against the West. Those are truly daunting obstacles with which genuinely narrow the bandwidth of Western policymakers. And of course, I haven't even mentioned yet the horrific war um, between Israel and Hamas in in, in Gaza, um, which I think still leaves the Middle East hanging in balance and could, um, if that, if, if, if a regional conf- conflagration ensued, have massive uh, consequences for the stability of European domestic economies and polities. Mm-hmm. Do you think the primary drivers, though, of, uh, of, of prudence are domestic or are they uh, something else? Because uh, you've, you've highlighted several different factors. Uh, the, of course, there is... Uh, we have elections uh, happening in less than 12 months uh, in the United States, and the American assistance to Ukraine has increasingly uh, become an object of uh, disagreement between the Republican House um, and the rest of the American political system, I'd put it that way. Um, in the same way, you have the rise of the far right uh, in Germany, which is feeding in part um, on uh, perceptions, uh, playing on perceptions uh, that Germany is at risk because of escalation. But there's no real limit to the ability of the United States and Germany, for example, to produce more munitions for Ukraine, right? Well, um, I think the answer to that is yes and no, alas. Um, I, 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 I take seriously the assurances of the policymakers involved that they have for months been trying to get industry to produce more ammunitions and missiles, right? Um, I also, as unfortunately long-term observer of attempts to change the the workings of the German armed forces, um, know how entrenched the the forces of inertia and resistance are, right? And as you and I both know, that that is because that is by design. That is because the what the Germans call the Wehrverfassung, the order of the armed forces and their relationship uh, with the German state was purposely designed after 1949, um, in fact, after, after 1956, 1949, we gave ourselves a basic law that didn't provide for armed forces. 
Right. Uh, but we were asked to join NATO in 56 and asked to stand up 12 divisions, half a million men uh, to, to be able to do that. And, and so the, the domestic, the price for domestic political peace was a um, constitutional arrangement of rules and um, civilian oversight that I think makes it insanely difficult uh, to, to change and accelerate processes and, and innovation. Um, let, me, let me just say one, one thing again, to be fair. Um, we've all lived through, and, and I think towards the end suffered through, um, 16 years, four terms of Merkelian incrementalism, and largely, it has to be said, um, indifference by Merkel-led governments to the armed forces and a great deal of quite public skepticism towards security policy, right? And I give this traffic light coalition in Berlin credit for wanting to implement um, transformative, radical change. Um, what I am critiquing, what I'm sure you would critique as well, is um, the degree to which infighting and some fairly basic governance mistakes have hampered their own, their own purpose. Um, they, I mean, they do have enemies. They have enemies in the hard right. They are certainly not friends with the with the conservative opposition. But but many um, much of the of the um, still stand that we're sorry. That's a German expression. Um, stand still. <laughs> stand still. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, that's very funny. Um, much of the standstill that we're seeing now is, I think. It has to be said, um, due to what we in German would call handwerkliche craft, statecraft mistakes by the coalition itself and their infighting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so let's uh, let's uh, dig unpack a little that. deeper on that um, and or unpack. Yes, uh, the, the there is a three an, a sort of unprecedented three party coalition um, in in power in Berlin as you noted and uh, you know each of the parties that has uh, had to confront an unanticipated change in the european security landscape um has had to um swallow things that uh, that they uh, would never have imagined um just a few years ago so um the social democratic party uh, these days has been um have, conducting a debate about whether one can use the word combat ready or however you might uh, translate Kriegstüchtig um, to describe the requirements of Germany's armed forces. Um, do you think this is a um, uh, a fundamental division or is this uh, would you put this in the category of growing pains that might be excruciating to watch from the outside um, but that are going to turn out right? Well, again, it is excruciating to watch, right? Um, yeah. The um, the Social Democratic Party has, you know, is fielding a chancellor who I think quite genuinely considers himself a transatlanticist, is genuinely appalled at Russia's full-scale invasion at the and at the suffering it has caused and is causing in Ukraine, understands the security risk to Europe and to, and to Germany. But who came in in, 19, in 2021, um, one percentage point ahead of his conservative um, rival, 
um, and is fielding Germany's first ever three-way coalition um, with two unusually large coalition partner with widely diverging um, notions about prior, the, the priori priorities that the government should have. Um, he also has a party base that is profoundly emotionally invested in, in Entspannungspolitik, uh, the policy of um, essentially thawing relations with, with Russia, Wandel durch, durch Handel, change through trade, um, and which I think the party, party leadership has done well in accepting as you know, hugely damaging um, to, to Europe and not just to Germany. But, but the, the party base, I think, is very emotionally invested in this. It's, this, is a gen, this was seen as a generational a peaceful achieve, achievement by many social democratic voters. And it is very hard to overcome these, um, these prejudices, as I know from, from my own career of writing and, and the responses I would, I would get to simply asking whether Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, was a really good idea or whether that wouldn't just deepen dependency. Uh, I got some, whenever I wrote this, I would get very, very nasty emails from people whose names we know. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, it's, I think Schultz, the chancellor is lucky to have a very activist, very energetic defense minister um, who genuinely is invested in transforming the armed forces. But, but, this, is, but this is hard work. And the, the, the landscape of threats and challenges that we outlined at the beginning of our conversation I fear is going to force them into much more drastic measures in quite short order. Yeah. And, and I, I think that based on the pattern that we've seen in the past two years, um, they will say no, 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 until forced by circumstances to say yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, do, what do you have in mind in particular uh, when you talk about the, the coming decisions? Is it about expanding the resources um, uh, devoted to defense. Uh, I, I highlight that as well because we're talking on November 20th, just a few days after Germany's constitutional court um, had issued a somewhat surprising decision, um, which basically invalidated one of the off-budget uh, funds uh, that the German government has been using, not for defense, um, where there's a separate 100 billion euro um, a special mm -hmm. fund, but uh, for uh, climate transformation. Now, there are jurisprudential reasons uh, why that uh, doesn't really apply to the uh, the, the uh, special fund for the armed forces. Nevertheless, Germany has placed upon itself um, the uh, the handcuffs um, of uh, of the so-called debt break, um, which dramatically limits the flexibility of the government to respond. Um, in emergent circumstances. Yeah, well, it strikes me that for a country that views the right to drive at maximum speed on the Autobahn as the functional equivalent of uh, the, the right to bear arms in America, um, the, 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 <laughs> this, this obsessive focus on breaking debt is, is sort of strange, but, but yes, um, enough with the jokes. Um, Yes, as we know, this, this suit was brought by the Conservative Party, which is in the opposition, um, against the government and was successful painfully. It was successful the day before the budget law was due to be voted into force. Um, so it has, I think, arguably just lit a, you know, lit a fuse under, under the coalition. 
That said, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the government could, would, could fall apart. I think that that is extremely difficult, as we all know, under um, German constitutional law and practice. And the, and the constitutional court has, in fact, frowned on, on attempts in the past to call snap elections to order, in order to improve a sitting chancellor's um, chances. As we know, that happened in 2005 uh, yeah. by, by, uh, by, by Gerhard Schroeder, who got his, his fingers slapped. Um, but but it does put a government that was already struggling um, on the defensive. And the, the leader of the opposition, Friedrich Merz, threatened on national TV in an interview to continue doing that with other special funds. I have a hard time seeing him doing that with the special defense fund, but, but he made it very clear that for him this was only the beginning. Um, since... If he if he wants to if he wants to become chancellor in the future, which which we can assume, um, his necessary coalition partner would have to be one of the three parties currently in in, in government. At least not one. Sure that at least one. Wise. At least one. Exactly. Could be more. Uh, not not sure that this is the best way to make friends. But here we are. Yeah. And and maybe if I could jump from there to what this means for Germany's ability to act as it often has in the past, as a country that forges European consensus um, and that uh, you know has a, a deep and abiding interest in bridging gaps in Europe in a way that really I think no other no other European country uh, does. Um, and and so this, you know, potential paralysis um, inhibits Germany's ability to um, to use the flexibility uh, that comes from being Germany's largest, uh, Europe's largest economy, with the greatest capacity to carry um, uh, some debt, um, and to use that to create structures that uh, are in the the broader European and transatlantic interest. Um, uh, should Germany be doing more at the European level and not just uh, be indulging? No, no, indulging is the wrong word. I strike that from the record. No, um, uh, you know, operating according to a transatlantic instinct, which, you know, as you and I both know here in Washington has been very welcome um, uh, since Schultz took office. Nevertheless, is Germany neglecting its European role? I think the chancery has really appreciated the embrace by the Biden administration and genuinely sees itself as a driver of European cohesion. In fact, it has to be given Brexit um, and given a French government that is currently staring at the possibility of a renewed presidential run by Marine Le Pen um, who is riding extremely high in French polls right now. Yeah. Um, it, I think, has some reason to be reassured by the recent, recent Polish elections, um, which will, um, whenever that happens, uh, lead to a center-left coalition coming into power in Warsaw, which ought to make the hitherto toxic uh, Warsaw-Berlin relationship somewhat easier. Let's remind listeners as well that the 
upcoming European Council in December in Brussels, we'll see some extremely important decisions. In fact, we're heading into a year of extremely important decisions and elections um, in Europe and in the United States. The December Council um, needs to decide on the uh, opening of accession negotiations to the European Union with Ukraine, Moldova, and an invitation to Georgia, if I, I believe, and discussions with the Western Balkans over their uh, future integration into Europe. Um, it is also the preparatory council meeting to European Parliament elections in the um, summer of next year, where the European hard right intends to, at least if, if, if it gets its wish, to make significant inroads, not just in the European Parliament, but also in the executive organ in the commission. Mm -hmm. Those are really significant challenges. And of course, the American election is looming over all of this. But the problem is that this constitutional judgment um, in, in that undermines not only Germany's ability to fund its climate and energy transition, but also undermines its, its ability to fund European projects and the European budget of which Germany, if I'm not mistaken, uh, covers a quarter. So that is, is going to be a significant impediment to Germany's ability to lead. The way forward um, in all of this, you know, that often the phrase political will gets thrown around, which is the equivalent of saying wave a magic wand. Um, it's a way of of of, of wishing um, into uh, into place um, uh, commitments that that don't exist um, in the political vision of the uh, uh, of the decision makers uh, or in the circumstances to which they are responding. Um, so, in light of this uh, really grave threat to European security that you've outlined and the extremely difficult circumstances. Um, politically, in in terms of upcoming elections, um, what's uh, uh, what's the best one can hope for? I think, as you say, you know, calling for political will. The the other the other trope here is calling for leadership, right? Mm. Um, is is cheap, but I think this is the moment where, like it or not leaders from all parties, if they wish to be seen as responsible, need to explain to the electorate of Germany and of Europe that we're looking at a generational challenge in which all of us have to play a part and which will see some very difficult trade-offs between different elements of, of the national budget. Right? Mm -hmm. But that the cost of inaction would be much, much higher and much and, and, and produce a much greater threat to the prosperity, stability, and security of Europe and of Germany than, than the cost of measures to be proposed. And those measures, I think, would be based on the understanding that even were Putin to disappear in Moscow, we would be facing, for the duration of a generation at least, a Russia that is totalitarian internally and imperial in its ambitions externally, 
and that any European security order, which with Germany at its heart, needs to be con needs to be constituted in such a way as to respond appropriately to that. And that means strengthening resilience, deterrence and defense. And in my view, um, with Ukraine in the tent rather than outside of it. I'm going to I'm going to grasp and clutch at that uh, silver lining you've just offered there because I think one uh, one additional um, thought comes to my mind as you as you describe that and that is the German public I think for many years has demonstrated um on the whole a remarkable openness uh, in some cases greater openness than political leadership has demonstrated um to adapting to these changed circumstances um and so i will uh, i will pause that thread of the conversation um with the hope that uh formulating and bearing that uh, uh those costs um which are uh, much less than the cost of inaction um, uh, also say one, one thing, if I may, Jeff, um, sure. which is that the, the call for leadership and political will always underestimates that, that we are in a situation that requires an all of society effort, right? Um, and, and by that, I do not just mean industry. By that, I truly mean all of society. I think that for the past 30 years, most of us have been consumers of prosperity, stability, and security. And, and I think we have to understand that this kind of situation requires us to be much more active and to be to react as citizens and not just as consumers. Mm -hmm. All of us have a role to play. And, and I think if we understand that, it becomes much easier to create a general atmosphere of, of solidarity Right, where where we can all say all of us are sacrificing for the greater good. Yes. On that note, I want to jump to a completely different topic, um, but one on which you also have a um, an important um, uh, perspective, and that is the uh, the the German chapter of Women in International Security, uh, Wise Germany, celebrated its twentieth anniversary. Um, I think just last week. Um, you were uh, an instrumental figure um, in the. Well, you were president of Wise for uh, for five years, quite a while, um, and and so one of the things that struck me as an observer of Germany and uh, and especially of Germany's uh, security policy culture and debates is the the number of prominent women who are now shaping that debate, um, whether you turn on the television, um, uh, look at the commentaries. Um, that's been a remarkable uh, uh, outgrowth of this most recent crisis. Um, and so I'm just curious how you feel um, as uh, as someone who played uh, played a leading role um, uh, early in the uh creation of wise uh, how you feel that uh, situation is evolving in your home well country. let me just say it makes me really really happy um and let me also give a shout out to um the woman who for the longest time was the woman in international security in germany and who just died in in early november helga haftendon at the age of 90 a professor at the Free University of Berlin with many, many students 
um, who are profoundly loyal to her. I was never one of her students, but I interviewed her for a piece that was my valedictory piece at my old newspaper in 2005, um, with a, with the title "Was macht denn das Fräulein da?" What's What's the young What's the young lady doing there? Mm -hmm. Which was what a committee chair once um, said when he saw her sitting in a committee uh, composed otherwise only of men, and. Um, People like Helga Hafendon and Beatrice Häuser, who teaches in the United Kingdom, um, were really for a very long time the only women who worked in this field. And people like me, um, you know, followed in their wake and were deeply grateful for it. I was chairwoman of WISE between 2009 and, and 2013, having had to join WISE America uh, years before that because there was no German WISE. And I was happy to to help you know, professionalize and grow wise and attract more older members. Um, and now if I'm not completely mistaken, it's the largest European subsection um, chapter. Um, and it has something like 600 or 700 members, which was unthinkable when, when, when I first joined it and, and rejoined it in Germany. So this is good news. And, and I will say that, that um, women like um, Claudia Mayor, Jana Pulyarin, Rike Franke, Sabine Fischer, many others, you know, are, are acknowledged as, as really outstanding experts in their field, um, really without references being made anymore to the fact that there are women and that that isn't somehow extraordinary, which I am truly grateful for. Yeah. It is, it is a natural thing. Um, uh, I, I agree. And, uh, and it is, uh, if we're thinking about silver linings uh, of uh, of of the security crisis that Europe finds itself in, it is that uh, so many uh, women have uh, been playing such a crucial role in explaining, uh, advising, and uh, putting into context uh, the challenges that Germany uh, and the transatlantic community face. Yep, that's good news. Okay. Well, maybe that's the place we should we should wrap then, uh, Constanza. Thank you so much for spending this time uh, with us uh, today. I, I'm sure uh, all of our listeners will be uh, delighted to have made it all the way to the end of this uh, conversation. And we look forward to having um, uh, all of them with us again on the next episode. Of the it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to any female German listeners, um, do join WISE if you aren't a member yet. Cheers. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. And also please visit our website at AmericanGerman.Institute. Form of the ASCGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks.